For him, there was no way out. I don't know about you, but my experience uh, in relationships um, have, have that they've been both the best part of life and the hardest part about life. Uh, and, and it's true. Like love, love can be, you know, our relationships can be the greatest source of love and joy and fulfillment in our life, but also the greatest source of pain and heartache and challenge. And, uh, and if you've been married, if you are married or been married before, uh, or you're in a long-term relationship, um, you know that making love work in our relationships can at times actually be a lot of work. And so having healthy relationships that are full of love and romance and connection and intimacy are something that we actually have to work at. And when you think about it, just the differences between testosterone and estrogen alone proves just how volatile it is, right? Like to, to have this attempt to join your life to another person for life and one of you not end up dead. Like it, it is a crazy social experiment this thing called love and romance and marriage. Uh, and, and then you layer on top of that all of your baggage and hangups, and yet there's something in us that knows that it's worth it, right? There's something about love and sharing your life with someone else. And, and the truth is that relationships are, are never stationary though, right? They're, they're always in motion. There's always momentum in our relationships that are, that are carrying us towards one another or away from each other. And then you, you kind of factor in all the demands of life and jobs and careers and raising kids. And, and, and it can feel so easy to kind of mess it all up and, and to, get off, you know, to, to get off the path a little bit. And, and maybe you're feeling a little bit of that tension um, here this morning. And honestly, it, it, it's embarrassing for me to admit and a little bit painful, but there have been times in my life where I've done a better job loving people that I barely know as a pastor than I have loving the people that I love the most in my life. There have been times where I've done a better job leading a church than I have leading my family. And maybe you can, you can relate to a, a little bit of that because of how you've thrown yourself into your career, how you, you know, the relationships you have outside your home. Because here's the deal, and you know this, like proximity, like uh, uh, the, how close we are to someone physically, proximity doesn't actually produce intimacy with that person, right? You can be sharing the same house. You can even be sitting in the same room. You can be occupying the same space. You can even be laying in the same bed, but there be a universe of distance between you. There are a lot of voices in our culture that are out there telling you that, that you can't make it, that you don't have what it takes, that you're not good enough, that your family won't make it, that your marriage is doomed to fail, that you're broken beyond repair, that it's too late or your kids are gonna be screwed up. But I want you to know that it's absolutely not true. Don't believe the hype. That's why we're doing this, this series, because you can make it. You can close the gaps and the spaces and the distances between you and the people you love. Your family can win. Your marriage can be healthy and strong and fulfilling. Your kids don't have to grow up and hate you. Your circumstances don't define your family. Your family history doesn't have to repeat itself. God is for you, and he's for your family. Now, oftentimes, when we think about the death of our relationships, about love dying off, we always imagine it to be 
something big and catastrophic, but it almost never is, right? It's almost always just about our choices and our habits, the small choices that we make hundreds and hundreds of times over the weeks and months and years of our relationship. So a, a couple of weeks ago, if, if you're just joining us today, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this idea of communicating in code. It's one of the ways that we kill our relationships, that, that bad communication ultimately is the thing that all the other problems that that we have in relationships sort of flows through. That almost every relationship problem comes from some sort of bad communication. And then last week we talked about this idea of being inflexible, about being demanding and demanding your own way. And, and, and the idea that our, in our relationships, we actually tend to move from, from loving them and pursuing them and deferring to them to having won them over and now being demanding of them. And when we do, it starts, to, it starts to poison our connection and our relationship. And so today, we're actually going to uh, kind of dive into this idea of focusing on what's wrong. H- have you ever tried to do something for someone, but somehow, like, it got misinterpreted and then it ended up turning out badly? Like, like your intentions were right. You actually did the thing that you set out to do, but it just wasn't received in the way that you thought it was gonna be received. You were trying to help, but they took it like, you know, you, you thought they weren't good enough or, or you were doing something to be playful and fun and they didn't, they didn't take it that way at all. Uh, my wife and I, when we were youth pastors, we were youth pastors for a long time. And, and so we became experts in the art of toilet papering people's houses. Um, anybody, anybody, anybody good at that? Anybody done that before? Okay, yeah, we... And so it carried, when we, when we launched our first church, we were senior pastors and we lived in a small community. And so we decided it was time to, to restart that up. So we, you know, we had people and, and the, there were a couple uh, near misses and cops got involved one time and it was, it was crazy. But uh, 10 or 12 years ago, we were pastoring a church in that, in that small community and we had some friends that we'd gotten pretty close to and we, de- we decided to have a little bit of fun and teepee their house. And, and, and so whenever we teepeed people's houses, we always teepeed our house so we had deniability. We're like, can you believe it? Somebody's out there. Like, who? We're taking pictures of it. Like, who did this? Uh, but we TP'd them uh, and we took it easy on them. I'm not going to lie. We didn't want to completely ruin their Saturday. Uh, and, and part of, but part of like the fun of TPing somebody's house is eventually being found out. You don't want to be found out right away, but eventually, you know, that it comes out and you're like, ha, we got you, you know, that kind of stuff, starting the wars, all that stuff. So a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks later, when it came out, um, they didn't respond in the fun-loving way that we had expected. In fact, they were super like hurt and offended that we would do any such thing to them. See, have you, have you ever done something out of relationship and it just didn't turn out how you thought? Right? Or, or have you ever walked into a room and you could just sense right away that the other person was clearly upset at you, but you had no idea why? Right? And, and, and you think, Am I like, did I miss something? What am I missing? And the answer honestly is yes, yes, you are missing something. Because isn't it true that we, we've all had those kinds of experiences, even in our closest relationships? And why is that? Because what, what's actually happening between us, what's actually going on between us and them is really only a small part of the story that's playing out in that moment, right? The real story is what, we're all telling ourselves about each other and about what we're doing, right? The story that's playing and being told in the privacy of their minds is the biggest factor in the dynamic between two people. 
It's not necessarily what we do, it's what we tell ourselves about what we do. When it comes down to it, our experience of everything, including our most important, our closest relationships, it conforms to how we consistently actually think about those people and think about those relationships and think about who they are and what they do. More often than not, the thing that's impacting and steering our relationships is not what is happening between us, but the story that we tell ourselves about what's happening between us, which is hard for us to accept because if you're like me, like you push back and go, no, it's got nothing to do with what I think about what you did. It has everything to do with what you actually did. And there's that tension. Besides, I I wouldn't actually think what I think if you didn't do what you did. But human beings are meaning-making machines, right? We, we make everything we do and everything they do into a story that makes sense and means something. And it's always been true. So there's a, there's a story of a married couple in the Old Testament that really illustrates all of this uh, perfectly. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And we're going to pick it up with verse 16. It's between a married couple, a guy named David, who is king of Israel, and his wife, Michal. Uh, and begins in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 16. It says this, says, As the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked down from her window when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. She was filled with contempt for him. Now, the story starts off, and the language right away is telling, right? Because if you didn't know, if I, if you didn't know this story, if you didn't know these people, if I didn't just tell you that they were a married couple and in love, like nothing about what we just read would tell you that these two people are together, right? It refers to McCall as the daughter of Saul, and it refers to David as King David, which is a very strange and kind of formal way to talk about two people who are married and in love. And so it's obvious right away that things are not good between them. And what an interesting juxtaposition, right? A king who is so publicly beloved that he's triumphantly entering the city that's been named after him. And there's a parade and it's a party atmosphere and people have written songs about him and people are singing his praises and he's a beloved king, but all the while things are actually crumbling at home. And isn't it true that no amount of success outside of our home can actually compensate for things falling apart on the inside? Things can be great in every area of your, of your life, but when they're not good at home, nothing else matters. And so McCall sees her husband dancing and he's full of joy and he's having a grand time. And for some reason, she's filled with contempt for him. That's, I mean, that's a pretty strong, pretty strong emotion. See, contempt is the belief that someone is beneath you, that they're pathetic, that they're disgusting, maybe even stupid. Some translations of this story actually say that she despised him or was disgusted by him. How tragic to get to that place in your marriage. And by the way, David has no idea at this point. He has no idea. He's, he's excited. The ark of God, which was very important to the to Jewish people, 
that is coming into the city of David. And he had, as a king, had prepared a place for it to sit. And he's excited. So he's dancing. He's having a great time. But he has no idea that at home his wife is looking down and has contempt for him. In fact, the story tells us that after the ark was put in its place, that David made sacrifices to God and he worshiped God. So he like went to church and then he prayed over all of the families in the crowd and everybody who was there and he blesses them and he, he gives them a gift to everybody who's there. And, and then the story continues. This is what happens next in, in uh, verse 20. It says this, says that when, after all of that, when David returned home to bless his own family. So he's like, blesses everybody. He's coming home ready to bless his family. When David returned home to bless his own family, Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. She said in disgust, how distinguished the king of Israel looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar person might do. Now, he didn't actually do that. He didn't do what she was accusing him of, but he was being very undignified as a king in her eyes. He wasn't acting like a king. Her dad had been the king, and she knew how a king was supposed to conduct himself in front of other people. So the conversation and the things that she says, I mean, it's full of sarcasm and it's a little passive aggressive. She's mocking him. There's some condescension. There's some exaggeration, like I said, because she says that he did stuff that he didn't actually do. See, what happens is contempt actually poisons our perceptions of everything a person does. Like, have you ever been in a relationship where you felt like you couldn't do anything right? Like, like they had already made a decision about you and there was nothing that you could do about it. I, I wonder if there's anybody that's ever been in your life that's ever felt that from you. See, the truth is our affection for people, our affection for that other person, it's a product of our attitude about them. But here's what's interesting. Our attitude isn't a product of what they've done. It's a product of what we choose to focus on. Meaning, so oftentimes what we feel for them comes as a result of our perceptions or our thoughts about them. Because we always end up seeing their actions through the lens of our assumptions, reading into what they're doing, right? We, we see what they do through the story that we are telling ourselves about them and who they are and what they're doing. See, you can actually get to the place where even the good things they do look like bad things to you. I, I, I wonder, what's the story that plays in your mind when they let you down? What, what's the story that plays in your mind when they do something different than what you wanted or what you expected them to do? When they leave their, floor, their clothes on the floor again, when they didn't bring home the thing you asked them to pick up at the store, when they left you hanging, when they were late, when they were inconsiderate, or rude, or hurtful, what conclusions do you jump to? What generalizations do you make about them? What judgments do you pronounce over them? One of the biggest sources of conflict in my relationship with my wife, Hansi, has always centered around um, my uh, uh, ministry schedule because Oftentimes, when you try to have you know, a regular schedule for your family and your kids and a regular time where you're trying to sit down and have dinner, or a regular time where you're trying to have family time, 
Uh, and we were trying to build that and I was always bailing on it. I was always late. I was always saying, I'll be there at five and I wasn't there at five. I'd show up at six or I, I would, you know, I'll be home and we'll have this night. And then that night I get called away, something happens. <clears throat> and and, and I, I will tell you, like one of the biggest struggles is trying to work through the story and the perceptions about you know, that she's that's playing in her mind about why I'm doing what I'm doing and my, the story that's playing in my mind about why she's hung up on me being 30 minutes late, right? Like we all have that. And then you have all the, the story and the stuff that comes in between two different families and in-laws and all this stuff that, that's playing out and you have to navigate that and there's all this tension. And, and so what do you do when they let you down? What, what is the story? What is the thing that you're telling yourself? The story goes on, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 21 and 22. So David responded to Michal. He said, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father and all his family. And he appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of, uh, of the Lord. So I celebrate before the Lord. Yes, and I am willing to look even more foolish than this, even be humiliated in my own eyes. But those servant girls that you mentioned will indeed think that I am distinguished. So this is like a really, really interesting response, right? Because he's basically like, look, I wasn't dancing for you. I was dancing for God. And then he plays this card. I don't know if you remember this or not, but God chose me over your dad. Your dad was king, but he sucked, right? Like he was terrible. And so God chose me to take his place and my whole family, like nobody in your family will ever be king. God chose me. I'm God's chosen one. And you think that's bad? You think what I did out there was bad? You think you're embarrassed now? I'm willing, you have no idea what I'm willing to do to make a fool of myself to embarrass you. And those poor little servant girls that you're so worried about, man, they're gonna love me. They're gonna think that I'm distinguished as a king. They're gonna be like, Saul who? David's the man. Like that, that is the response that David has, right? When I was growing up in church, there were the times when I would heard, I heard uh, you know, people at this point in the story where they would talk about how spiritual David was because he said things like he was willing to look foolish for God. And, and look, I love David. He's one of the, the greatest characters in all of history, but especially in the scriptures. And, and he, you know, the scriptures call him a man after God's own heart. But I actually think his response in this moment is way more spiteful than it is spiritual. Like, I'm not getting this sense that he's just like, you know what, I'm gonna go worship Jesus and you need to get yourself together. No, he's like, God chose me and so you can deal with it, woman. But that's what contempt does, right? It puts the other person on their heels. It escalates the drama. It makes them defensive. And then it becomes a contest of who can hurt who and who can insult the other person the worst and who gets the last word and all of which is just miles away from how love would behave. The sad part for David and McCall is this, uh, is this isn't how it always was. This wasn't how it used to be. In fact, if you go back just one book in the scriptures in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 20, it says this. It says, Saul's daughter, McCall, so Saul was still king at this point. She'd fallen in love with David. David was a young warrior in the army. And Saul told his men to say to David, the king really likes you and so do we. Why don't you accept the king's offer and become his son-in-law? 
And so David was delighted to accept the offer. So, like when you read that story, there's a lot more going on than what I just read, right? There's all kinds of craziness going on between David and Saul. But the bottom line is this, is David and McCall were young and in love. They were completely smitten with each other. Like he loved that she was this beautiful princess and, and she loved that he was a warrior and a little bit wild and a little bit untamed. But now that they've been married for 15 years, like the gap between this story and the story we started out is they've been married for 15 years. Now, now the, those, those things seem to be the very things that they hate about each other. And, and, and notice, like they really hadn't fundamentally changed as people, but the way that they saw and felt about one another absolutely had changed. And, and that's the power of our perspective, right? That, that's why it matters what you focus on because our focus can actually transform what once made them sexy into what now makes them stupid, right? It, like that thing that you're just like, man, I just love the way he chews his gum. It is just, mm. And then you're like, if you chew that one, I will punch you in the throat, right? Like it's that kind of thing. That thing that you used to love about them is the thing that makes you just want to like, pummel their face into put a pillow over you know like the question is what is it that that you're focusing on in your relationships because you can actually brainwash your view of someone by the way that you talk to yourself about that person david's son solomon many years later he wrote these words in proverbs chapter 17 verse 17 He said, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for a time of adversity. See, love is a decision that we make to look out not for ourselves, but for the other person. It it means when they start going through drama, when, when they start going through difficult times and through adversity, that you actually move toward them, not away from them. Even when that struggle is with you. It's recognizing that the struggle that the moments of pain and brokenness are exactly the moments where love is needed the most. It means having their back. It means drawing close to and supporting them even when it hurts and costs you something. See, love's most natural reflex is forgiveness. In Proverbs, a couple of chapters later, Solomon wrote these words, Proverbs 19, 11. He says, a person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. That, that, that in your wisdom that you would have patience, that, that it actually is not to their glory or their benefit, it's to your glory when you are willing to overlook the offenses and the annoyances and the little things that happen and just inevitably come between two people that love each other. See, we don't know all of the events that led to David and McCall in this moment of contempt. But here's what I do know. The people you love, they're going to let you down. If you're married, your spouse is gonna let you down. Can I just tell you, like, it's gonna be like the Olympics and they are winning the gold medal every day for letting you down. And I know this because it's true of all of us. And you know what? It's true of you. Jesus actually described it this way in Matthew chapter seven, verses three to five. 
He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to them, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, you phony. First take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. See, part of what he's saying is this. It's really difficult for us to have a clear and accurate picture of other people's problems and other people's brokenness and other people's mess because we're blinded to and by our own problems and our own brokenness and our own mess. And so when we focus on their problems, we end up acting as if it's our job to fix or correct them. But it's, it's not. It's our job to, to love them, to choose to forgive people the things that they don't even know that they need to ask forgiveness for. It's our job to be the people in our lives, especially with the people that are most closest to us, that we breathe grace and forgiveness on those people. That is the natural reflex of our lives. See, love says, come hell or high water, I'm wearing your jersey, I'm on your team. It's a decision that we make. Most of us get caught up in the moment and our reaction makes things worse. We saw that with David and McCall, right? We escalate the drama. But what would it look like to actually de-escalate things? What, what, what would it look like to take a deep breath and take a step back and in that moment choose to love? Because here's the deal. Love isn't just an action it's a reaction. I want to read a, a, a portion of scripture that primarily only gets read at, uh, at, at weddings. And so you're probably familiar with this, but um, it's actually a part of the whole, it's like part of the actual Bible. It's not just in the wedding Bible. Um, so we can read it even though we're not at a wedding. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, it says this, it says, love is patient and love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And it always protects and always trusts and always hopes and always perseveres. See, when it says love does not envy, that, that's love's reaction when the good happens for them and not for you. See, I'm I, I reading into it, but I think part of what was happening for McCall is she's looking down there and she's remembering her dad is no longer the king and her family was in the spotlight and now she's looking down at the man she loves and he's down there and he's beloved and everybody and she's stuck. And I think there was a little bit of this envious thing going on. But love doesn't envy. That's the, that's the reaction when good happens for them and, and not for you. Isn't it true that when you're mad at someone, when they've hurt you, isn't it really tough to be happy for them when something good happens to them? You're just like, I'm just so happy for you. Yay. Die. It says love does not boast. That's love's reaction when you've done something good that you feel, done something that you feel good about, right? When you're selfless or when you're loving, isn't it tough not to rub their nose in it, especially when they've done something wrong, right? Like, like I did this for you. I spent all day working on this thing. I planned this thing. I did, you know, whatever it is, right? Isn't it difficult to not just go, look at how awesome I am, but love doesn't do that. Love does not dishonor others. That's love's reaction when you're in a relationship with someone and you're finding it hard to really respect them. 
but love refuses to dishonor the other person. Love is not easily angered. That's love's reaction when they let you down or they press your buttons, when they keep doing that stupid, annoying thing that drives you crazy. Love is not easily angered. Love doesn't keep a record of wrong. That's love's reaction when they hurt you or they treat you unfairly. Love perseveres. That's love's reaction when things are hard and you feel disconnected and alone and misunderstood. See, love isn't just an action, it's a reaction. Check out the ending of the story in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Verse 23, it says this, so Michal, the daughter of Saul, remained childless throughout her entire life. Most scholars believe, most biblical scholars believe, most historians believe that this was the end of their relationship, that they wrote it this way because David never slept with her again. It was a kind way of saying, this was the end. In fact, this story is the last time she's ever mentioned in any way, whether it's in connection with him or otherwise. What a tragic, heartbreaking way for their story to come to an end. So how do we avoid the same outcome? How do we keep our stories from ending up in the same place? How do we, how do we make love our reaction? Well, in large part, it comes down to what you focus on. You begin to train your brain to focus on what you love about them or what you used to love about them and not what you think they lack, not what drives you crazy. Because here's the deal, and you know this, you're smart. You've experienced this. You'll find what you're looking for. It's called confirmation bias. So whatever it is that you're looking for, you're gonna find it. If you're looking for the dirt on them, if you're building a case in your head about why they're so terrible, you'll find all the evidence you need. You will. But if you start looking for reasons to love them, you start looking for proof that they love you, you'll find it. You'll find it. Whatever it is you're looking for, you'll find it. See, a negative heart and a negative attitude has never, ever, ever produced a positive outcome in a relationship. Everybody's like, man, we were doing really bad. And then we both got super negative and it just got better. Like that's never happened, <laughs> right? Because we all eventually treat people according to whatever it is we've told ourselves about them. And the truth is like, if we're gonna be honest, right? For some of us, training our brain to focus on, you know, what's positive, to focus on the positive things is harder than it is for others of us. Some of us are just sort of naturally wired to just see the negative stuff, like you, you didn't choose that, like that, that's just the way you're wired. I'll, I'll give you an example, like between my wife and I, like I'm, I rarely ever, ever have bad days in my life, not because bad stuff doesn't happen, but just because God wired me to where I'm just like, man, today's a great day. You just never know what's gonna happen. It's gonna be awesome and you're awesome and I'm all, we're awesome, let's do this, right? That, that's my general disposition. And she's just like, you know what? It's all terrible. I hate everyone. Life's the worst. It's all falling apart. We're all gonna die. Like that's how she's wired. I work on the side delivering pizzas for Domino's here in Eagle. And we have a guy who orders from us all the time. And uh, he, last month, he ordered from us 18 days in a row. So we actually have a whiteboard and, and it's all the daily instructions about what's going on. He, his name gets on the whiteboard because we're keeping track now. Like, okay, 
Dude, John just ordered again. He ordered from us 18 days in a row. We're like, can we keep it going? And so um, I told her, and you know, I only work a couple of days a week. So it was over the course of like three weeks. I'm like, man, John is still going. This is amazing. So I texted her. I'm like, we've had a guy that like, like has, you know, ordered from us 18 times in a row. And I was kind of like laughing. I thought it was cool. And she's like, oh my gosh, is he alone? Like, is he housebound? Does he not, does somebody need to go take care? Did he fall down? Like, is he stuck? Is he, what's going on? Like, what's, how, why is he ordering from you 18 days in a row? The following week I went back and the streak was broken. I was like, oh man, now the, now the streak was on there. Like we made it two days and John didn't order. So I texted her. She goes, I think he's dead. I know it. He's dead. He's, I'm probably from eating Domino's 18 days in a row. Maybe. She can't help it. Her brain goes to worst case scenarios every time, right? And so some of us are just wired where we have to intentionally choose to what we focus on. You have to retrain your brain to focus on what you love, not what they lack. Philippians chapter four, verse six. And verse eight says this, it says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. So all the stuff that you're just going, but what about, and they did, and why won't they change? And that, no, you just give it to him and let him worry about that piece. And in verse eight, it says this, it says, fix your thoughts on what's true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. See, if God thought about you the way that you thought about them, would that be a good thing? Like, can, can you imagine if God minimized all the good stuff about you and only saw you for the mistakes that you make or the imperfections that inconvenience him? Can you imagine? By the way, that's not how God sees you at all. And so maybe the best way for us to end today is just in this place where we're just honest with ourselves and we're gonna pray in a second where you're just honest with God. And, and, and maybe if you're not a follower of Jesus, like this is a, a great starting point in your relationship um, is for you to actually step into and tap into this incredible love that God has for you and for them and that you allow that love to begin to just pour into your soul and the way that you see them. Because when God looks at you, see, I, I'm so glad that, that Jesus didn't look down and go, man, let's skip it. I don't, not worth it. Have you seen the way these people act? I mean, really, I'm gonna go give my life for them. No, he, that's not what love does. He stepped out of heaven. He stepped into the mess with us. And he gave his life for us. You got to retrain your brain. You don't worry about anything, pray about everything, and fix your mind on what is excellent and pure and lovely. Let's pray together.